Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and snails everywhere boycotting French restaurants. It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means. Live from the Michigan State University campus, it's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBP, international superstar and diva of SLA. And speaking of snails... Here are two people who long ago shed their shells and launched themselves into the spotlight. My co-hosts, wow. Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. You know what to do. Say hello. Einen wunderschönen guten Donnerstagnachmittag. Does that mean you're a good snail? Uh, absolutely, yes, it does. Uh, it means I heard, I'm the best snail. There you go. I heard a guten snaggen and I thought that was a snail. Is that say, what it means? Say hi, Walter. You didn't say hi to the guten audience. Guten snaggen. What's that mean? That's not even a word. Oh, well, <laughs> I just made it up. Hey, everybody. It's great to be back with you today. Yes. And look, we're all three in the same room Yay. together. The same I room. think like we should be holding. Here, give me your yeah, hand. We should hold be holding hands. hands. Da, 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 we're holding da, da, hands. Da, 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 oh, my gosh. Oh, my <laughs> God. You do have cold hands, Angelica. I know. I know. It's a curse. Her hands are never cold. <laughs> But she got Betty Davis eyes. All right. <laughs> By the way, sp- have you ever eaten snails, actually? I have, yes. Have you, Walter, eaten snails? I have indeed, yes. And did you like them? Indeed. How did you have them? What, how were they prepared? With a lot of garlic. Yeah. The garlic, uh, the garlic butter ones? Yeah. Yep. Have you ever been to northern Spain, Walter, and had the northern, like the, the way they prepare snails in Cantabria and Asturias that area? No, I guess not. They actually did a little, they're little tiny snails, and uh, you have to take a little pin and prick them out, and they put them in like a little red tomato sauce kind of thing. Mm. It's huh. kind of like snail, almost like snails marinara. It's pretty good. Huh. And you can eat them with sidra, that big old Asturias. It's just right there. I'll, I'll eat snails in any old way except raw. They're, they're good. Okay. What's the most, is that the most, like, well, you're from Germany, Angelica, but what's the most non-American thing you've eaten? Like, hmm. snails is pretty non-American, but what's well, the... Crise de grenouille, I guess. Oh, that's frog, Come we eat now. frog legs in the United States all over Who the place. Who does? We used to go frog gigging in California, we ate frog legs as a kid. Well, I sure hadn't. They ate, them, anyway. in, they ate them in the South and in the Midwest, I'm Indiana. Think what else, though? Brain soup. Brain soup. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Like when I was seven, I didn't know it was Where? delicious. Oh my gosh! I know. What kind of? That's brain? why you're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> she just sucked. Up. Ooh, I'm getting. I'm getting smarter. Oh mm, my god! Look at that. E equals mc squared. Oh my god! <laughs> All right. Where does he come up with this stuff? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Well, guess what our topic is today, kids? Input. input. It's on input. input. Why? Is, input. Why is it on input? Because we're on chapter. Four. Four of my book. Uh, the focus of chapter four, of course, is input. And particularly today, we're going to talk a little bit about making input comprehensible. So we'll get to that later. That's to let everybody know what we're talking about. And uh, other than that, I got no news. I just got, I, you know, I always like to be able to make an announcement or say something fun. I got nothing. I'm dried up, Walter. Wow. I'm just, really? I'm just, I'm just, yeah. Shocking. Just call me the Gobi Desert. I'm so dried up. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I just, you have to douse me with water to, to get me all lubricated and unwet, undry because I'm just dried up. I'm so sorry to hear that. I know. You got to drink more tea, man. I think it's because I didn't have lunch today. So if I get a little what? punchy, yeah, I didn't have lunch today. So That's if I get a little tea. punchy, it's because my blood sugar is mm. either spiking or dropping or going sideways, who knows what. And I didn't have an afternoon coffee or tea. So I'll probably pass out halfway through the show. That'll I'll call 911. Which one of you is older? Because you'll have to take over. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. 
I don't know either. Oh, mm. well, let's do a birthday guess here. No, we're not going to well, go I'm, that Well, I'm road. CPR certified, so we'll be good. I'll, I'll bring you back to life. I used to be, but that was when you know, it was 15 compressions and two breaths, and now they've apparently changed it, right? So. Well, I carry a, de- defrib- <laughs> I carry a defibrillator <laughs> in my briefcase. In my briefcase, I have a defibrillator if you ever need it, so just let me know. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah, the little you portable ones. Just You're put kidding. those things. Seriously? I got it at some shop on a street in Chicago. Of course you snort. did. You put the these the little hell? things on you. Unbelievable. How about input? Oh, yeah, input. We're talking about input in a minute. All right. Well, I guess it, never mind. But we're gonna, no, we'll do input in the classroom. <laughs> that, that's how I actually do input in the classroom. I shock my students with it. I put those deep. <laughs> input Pay is attention. a shocking yeah. experience. Pay attention. Right? Right? Uh. Uh. <laughs> All right, so we'll get into we'll get into we'll get into input in just a minute, everybody. But let me remind everybody how the show works. If you're a first time listener, and there are a few of you out there always, that during the show there is the what we call the SLA challenge question, the second language acquisition challenge question. Uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to uh, read a question to you. And the first person who gets a call in with the correct answer wins a prize. We got wonderful prizes. We're better than the Oprah show when she was on. We give away Buicks. We give no, we don't. Um, <laughs> we give fun prizes away. That's only Oprah. So yeah, that's the old Oprah. She's not even on anymore. So <laughs> we outlived Oprah. Look at that. Okay, so so <laughs> we keep... started after Oprah was off the air, I think. I but anyway, <laughs> Walter, don't say that. Make people think we've been doing this forever. So keep your cell phones close by so you can call in and win that prize with the SLA challenge question. Uh, And the same, we also have the Diva challenge question. Um, I'll read that question sometime later after we get the SLA challenge question answered. Uh, And you'll have time to pick up, punch in our number, and you tell our call rustler, Dustin, I'm calling in with the answer to the Diva question. So please put me through. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, I'll read that just a little bit slower because we're dealing with comprehensible input today. That is 517-884-4321. Again, Dustin is on the phone lines. We're waiting for your call. Hey, Dustin. Angelica will be looking on Mixler to see what issues come up. But please call in. And Angelica is going to chastise people on Mixler today. She's going to say, call in with that. Oh, I already did. Yeah, see, I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to read that comment out loud. You have to call in. So we're we're a call-in talking show. Otherwise, it's just me and Walter and Angelica playing cards here in the studio. So please call in. Uh, And uh, we don't want you to be shy. You're all teachers. You're used to speaking in front of people. So don't be afraid to call in. Uh, Our number again is Walter. Take it away. 517-884-4321 517-884-4321 is the number to call. There you go. All right. That's good, Walter. Walter, you got such a great radio voice. Yep, very true. <laughs> I listen true. to my I listen to I I never listen to myself. I never watch myself in videos. I never listen to myself, but I did listen to an episode recently because I was trying to find something. God, I sound like a chipmunk on steroids. Oh, I oh, was it the chipmunk episode, though? Maybe, maybe it was. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. Yesterday, we were doing Yoda in my class. That was oh, fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, we were talking about different word orders. And they go, hmm. doesn't Yoda speak an SOV language? I go, no, actually, he doesn't. He does not speak an SOV. He, he speaks an XSV language. So it could be object, subver- mm-hmm. uh, subject, verb, or it could be adverb, subject, verb. So he says things like, um, judge me by my size, you will. That's how we speak. So the conjugated verb always goes at the end, subject before, and then stuff in front. Mm. So it's not 100% because sometimes you use a copula verb and it's subject verb object but or subject verb X. But Wow. But most of the times it's X subject verb. So there. 
There you go. So if you want to learn a language that, that doesn't have English or German or Spanish word order, listen to Yoda, get the rhythm down, and then you can learn that language. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and give the SLA challenge question now, get it out of the way, and then we're going to launch into our topic. Does that sound, Walter? Do you, sounds do I, like a plan. Do I, have your, do I have your approval on that, Walter? I don't think that you need my approval, but I think it sounds great. I don't know. I don't know about Walter. Sometimes Walter gives me that look on Gallica like, mm. what the hell are you doing, Bill, mm. right? You know? So Sometimes. I have to, every once in a while I have to ask him. Okay. So here goes the SLA challenge question. You ready? Yes. Okay. This is easy peasy. Eric Herman, if you're listening, you better be the first to call in with this. Okay. Over the years, we have made the distinction between input that learners are exposed to and that part of the input that actually makes its way into the learner's head somehow. What is this subset of input called? Shall I repeat? Yes, please. Oh, this was Halloween week. I should do my Sanderson sister to my Bette Midler uh, <laughs> when she does the witch. <laughs> Blackity black. No. Okay. Over the years, we have made the distinction between input that learners are exposed to and that part of the input that actually makes its way into the learner's head somehow. What is this subset of input called? That's your SLA challenge question. Everybody in our listening audience should know the answer to this question. So call in, win a prize. And don't forget, we're still giving away books. My book called, Walter, read that title right there. While we're on the topic, BVP on Language, Acquisition, and Classroom Practice. There you go. Published by the American Council of Teaching of Foreign Languages. It's a best certified bestseller, by the way. Oh, yeah? I just got the news. Yeah, it's going like hotcakes. So we're happy with nice. that. But anyway, so we're, and we're happy to be able to give copies away. So... Um, so call in, um, win a prize for answering the SLA challenge question, and then your name automatically goes in the hat. Anybody who calls in today, their name goes in the hat to win a book. So that's great. All right, everybody. Should I get into the topic? Yes, please. Get into the topic? I will. <laughs> How's that? See, there you go. Well done. There you go. That was an XSV uh-huh. word order. There you go. Walter's, <laughs> Walter's linguistic background is, is, is haunting him. Okay, so let me get on the topic real quick and say a few things. I don't get a lot to say today because I know a lot of people out there have questions and comments about this, but I have just enough to tease you all. So our topic is about input and particularly input and comprehensibility. So here are some questions we're asking ourselves. How do we make input comprehensible? Especially, how do we know it's comprehensible? Because do we assume that it's comprehensible because we think we're making it comprehensible? And finally, what does it mean to talk with and not at students, a very important thing when we're dealing with input. Okay, so in language acquisition and language teaching, we often talk about modifying input to learners to help make it comprehensible. Okay, we all know what input is, right? Walter, can you give a definition of input? (laughs) I love it when you put me on the spot. Uh, That's why you did it, because you love it. No, I hate it, actually. (laughs) Angelica, what's the definition of input? Why are you putting me on the spot? All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Exposed to. It's the language that a learner hears or reads that's couched in a communicative event. I knew that. So it's language that you're you're listening or reading that you attend to for its meaning, right? I don't memorize the definitions, but I would be able to come up with something and you would say, well, not exactly. And I would say, okay, well, I knew that, but I just didn't put it in the definition. Well, I can tell you, all my 803 students, that's the course I teach this semester on the foundation language teaching, they all have that definition backwards and forwards right now. Okay, say that definition again. It's language that we hear or see that is couched in a communicative context. Thank you. So it's language that you process for its meaning or message. 
Angelica's taking notes, apparently. All right. So in language acquisition and language teaching, we often talk about modifying our input to learners to help make it comprehensible. Um, because if we talk too fast or talk to whether, you know, learners just go, huh? A lot of noise, right? So there are lots of tips and strategies that many of us use. Visuals, gestures, gestures, speaking more slowly, all kinds of things. And, and on the Twitter feed we'll look at a little bit later, there are some other ideas. Um, now, to be honest with you, there's not a lot of research on this that I know of about actually making compre- uh, input comprehensible. Uh, but my review suggests that the two biggest features for making input comprehensible are, you ready for this? Pausing and rephrasing. So um, a lot of people think slowing down is the most important thing. So if you talk like this at learners, that's useful. Um, not so clear it is. It actually distorts some things. But what people have found in some of the research, because there's not been a lot of research done on this since the 80s and 90s, actually. But what people have found is that if you just pause at the right places, so if you pause at the right places, learners have time to process what you're saying. Instead of after every single word, because I think that would get a little bit annoying. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. And it's just artificial. So, But pausing and then rephrasing. So if you said something like, um, two biggest factors for making input comprehensible are pausing and rephrasing. So again, pausing and rephrasing. Putting pauses in and saying something differently. Pausing and rephrasing. That's useful. See, see how I just did that, Walter? So those are kinds of things that we're seeing in the research that are really and the reason pausing and rephrasing, I mean, really, one of the reasons rephrasing is um, is is uh, beneficial is because you also wind up pausing when you rephrase. It's a natural thing you do. I can't overestimate or overstate the, the role that I think pausing plays in comprehension. Now, a lot of people also talk about keeping sentences shorter, which is true, right? So instead of saying a big, long sentence, say a short sentence. So Angelica is German. Walter's really? from New York. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What the hell? <laughs> I didn't know this was an interactive <laughs> session, Walter. Oh, well, wow. Well, it was Ouch. interpersonal <laughs> communication. So. <laughs> no, so, so a short sentence would be Angelica is German. A long sentence would be Angelica is German, but she's lived in the United States for a long time, I think. Excuse me, who? Angelica. Thank you. <laughs> you called me Angelica. No, I didn't. Yeah, I did. You heard wrong. Oh, too bad that this is a recorded radio. Daniel, can you adjust? Can you adjust your earphones? <laughs> okay. Anyway, so a lot of people think shorter sentences make language more comprehensible, and they do, but not just because they're shorter. It's because guess what? You put more pauses in when you have shorter sentences. So you you say a short sentence as a slight pause, and you say another short sentence. So every time you say a short sentence, you're adding pauses. Believe it or not, that little split second or two of of pausing gives more processing time for what you just said. So shorter sentences themselves are tied into pausing. So a lot of this stuff about comprehensibility comes back to how pausing gives learners what we call processing time. Because you got to remember, particularly in the beginning stages, what learners get right away is the beginning of the sentence. And if you keep going... They're still trying to process the beginning of the sentence. They miss the middle, and they don't catch up till you're at the end. So um, short sentences and pausing help them start to process more. Now, but a major question I have, and I think the field should have, is, is these are great strategies, but how do we know whether input is comprehensible or not? How do we know that? Only by what our students do. So this is why I talk about level-appropriate interaction with input 
in chapter four of my book. So my rule of thumb is this. If you say anything more than three sentences in a row without engaging your students, then you're not talking with them, you're talking at them. And you won't have appropriate measures to see if they're comprehending, right? So two, three sentences, and your students better be engaged with the content right away. Um, and, and that doesn't mean you just say one thing and then go on to another two or three sentences. You work those two or three sentences, right? So um, Walter has a bottle of water. Angelica? 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 <laughs> Walter has a bottle of water. Actually, Walter has... Two, two bottles of water. Okay. Angelica, how many bottles of water does how many <laughs> bottles of water does Walter have? Two. It's two, okay. Right? Walter, give me one. Does Walter have two bottles of water? No, he only has one. He has one bottle of water. And now he has how many bottles of water? Two. Two bottles of water. How many bottles of water do you have? One. One. Okay. And I have one. Actually I have half. Half a bottle of water. Okay. So, all right. And so that's how we work that one little sentence or two sentences about the bottles of water for a couple of times before we go on another thing. So the idea is to, is to um, not just say two things, ask a question, then say two things. That's not what we're talking about. Um, but we are talking about talking with and not at your students. So input doesn't mean throwing things at and, and monologuing at your students. And we talked a little bit about this last week on the show, so it's, but it's worth repeating. So, again, my bottom line is this. I always tell people talk with, not at. Um, and if your students aren't engaged with you, then you're talking at them. And so this leads me to one final topic, something that occurred to me in the office the other day. Um, a teacher came by and talked to me and said that he had an evaluation of his class and that it was that he was told his class was a little too teacher-centric, meaning that he talked too much. And now I'm not saying whether the criticism was true or not. Maybe he did. I don't know what. But his concern was that the person evaluating him said the students need to talk more. And what was implicated here and the discussion came out was that the evaluator was expecting students to make sentences in this language and produce more language. That the teacher's job was not to talk but to get them to produce sentence, produce language. And we talked a bit, and he was a little disconcerted. And I said, what he needed to be able to talk to people about this when he gets evaluated or down the road when he's teaching in school, maybe as a parent who comes in and says something or an administrator, is the following. So this is a rule of thumb that you all can use out there to talk to your administrators and parents and students. Is my classes aren't teacher-centric. If you're providing lots of input and talking with your students, my classes aren't teacher-centric. They are student and acquisition centered, but teacher led. That's a pretty profound way to rethink these things. Okay, so my classes aren't teacher centric. They are student and acquisition centered, but teacher led. Okay, it's a really important distinction to make. So the idea of the teacher centered classroom is derived from educational ideas about learning in the first language, right? So we have all these kinds of things coming out of schools of education about project learning and interaction and students teaching and so on. That's well and good. Those are great ideas when you already have a language. But a lot of these good educational ideas don't translate readily, if at all, into language classes because the students and our learners don't have language to do what they can do in an L1. 
So my thought for you today is as you make your classes input rich and you try to make your input comprehensible is that you are not teacher-centric. Don't let people tell you your class is teacher-centric. You are student and acquisition-centered. You are simply teacher-led. And here's one final example if you want to drive the point home to people. Angelica (laughs) is my little year and a half old, right? So she's 1.5 years old. And I'm getting her ready to take her out to the park. And it's chilly. So I'm going to put her coat on her, right? So I go, okay, come here, Angelica. Here, give me your right arm. She gives me her right arm. I go, put your right arm through the coat. Okay, give me your left arm. She gives me her left arm. Put your, come on, put your arm through the coat. Come on, come on there. Okay. Do you want, you want me to zip it up? No, no zipper. No, I got it. It's cold. No, zipper, no. No, I'm going to put the zipper just a little bit. I'm going to put the zipper up. Okay, now I'm doing all the talking, right? The child's only said one thing so far. Zipper, no, no zipper, right? We would never call that parent-centric talk hmm. in that communicative event. It's parent-led because the parent is the one who has a language. And the child is clearly interacting. The child is doing the arm here, doing the arm there, no zipper. Um, and so think of it that way, that that's what your classes really are. They are like the parent talking to the child. They are parent-led but not parent-centric. The child is clearly at the center of that communicative event. right? Okay. Enough of that. I thought that was an important thing to bring up because um, this, this, this friend of mine, this former student, was clearly a little um, concerned about what he had heard. So anyway, all right, we have a caller on the line already. My gosh, look at that. Okay, our caller on the line, I think, is named Paris. Paris, are you there? Hello? Paris. Paris, are you there? Yep, I think I heard her. Can you hear me? I oh. can hear you. Okay, I just heard you. Okay, uh, say something again, Paris. Are you there? Hi. Oh, great. How you doing, Paris? Where are you calling from? I'm out here in Seattle. In Seattle. In the rain. Wow. <laughs> well, it's raining here in East Lansing too. So, the gray skies and rain. You know, we all deal with it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I like. Yeah. So, are you a teacher, Paris? Um, I was a teacher for a long time. Now I support 80 world language teachers in my district. Oh, oh wow. well, good for you. Great, great, great. So what are you calling about today? It looks like, are you going to answer the SLA challenge question? I think so, because I've been binge reading your books. So. Oh, my God. Um, I'm like, look at me. She's been binge reading. I'm like the, I'm the, I'm the SLA equivalent of Orange is the New Black. She's been binge <laughs> reading. Oh, my word. Okay, all right. So, Paris, I don't think you needed to uh, boost his ego at all today. (laughs) Well, you know. All right. So, I think what you're looking for... Wait, 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 wait. Let me me read the question again for everybody. Because a lot of people will forget the question. So, let me read the question and give the answer. Okay, here we go. All right, so the question is this. Over the years, we have made the distinction between input that learners are exposed to and that part of the input that learners... that actually makes its way into the learner's head somehow. What is this subset of input called, Paris? Intake. Intake. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) So Paris wins a prize, and her name also, just because she called in, goes into the hat to win a copy of my book while we're on the topic. Um, And I I put this question as SLA Challenge today simply because um, the – Again, if the topic is about how we make our stuff comprehensible, even adding all these pauses, all these things we're talking about, topping with rather than at and so on, ultimately it's the learner that's in control or who is in control of what makes it in. So something in the head, even as comprehensible we try to be, only pieces and parts get penciled in at any given time. 
And that's what intake is. And so we just have to remind ourselves that that's why one of the reasons why acquisition is slow and piecemeal. So thank you, Paris, for that answer. That's that's great. Um, before I let well, you go, did you I have any? Thank you. I just want to thank you for the comment of you really should be saying more than three sentences without the learner interacting with the input, because I feel like when we call it comprehensible input, we're forgetting the interacting piece, right. interacting with it. And that's a piece that I know my teachers need a right, lot to right. think about. And again, it could be, it doesn't have to be students speaking in sentences. They can be shouting out a word. They can be nodding. They can be long. Engagement doesn't necessarily mean talking in sentences or talking in big phrases, right? So Yeah, um, that's really helpful. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. So, well, great, Paris. Thanks for calling in. And hopefully right. the rain will clear up soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. See you at okay. Bye-bye. See you at Actful. Bye, Paris. Thanks for calling, Paris. That was great. That was good. You know that song I like? Tell me something good. She just did. She did a good job on that question. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to go to Twitter press in a minute, but before I do that, I'm going to go ahead. Luca, can I read the, the Diva Challenge question? Just get it out there right now. And it. then I, I think Luca's saying, yes, I can. So I'm going to go ahead and do that, and then I'll get to some of the things that came up in the Twitter press for today. So here's our Diva Challenge question today. Um, we had a request last week from, who was it, that called in um, and wanted more international stuff? And I said, we had just did an Edith Piaf oh, question. Yeah. Um, so I have another international um, Diva question. So here we go. Walter will know this one. What? <laughs> I doubt high, it. Man. <laughs> what Cuban-born singer who died in 2003 was known as the Queen of Salsa? Again, what Cuban-born singer who died in 2003 was known as the Queen of Salsa? Good diva challenge question. So all you people from Miami better be calling in, or from New York for that matter, because she was lived in both places after she left Cuba. Okay, all right, so that's our diva challenge question. Um, and uh, oops, before I, I'm trying to pull up the, the Twitter press on my computer, but it's not coming up. So in the meantime, what I'm going to do is tell callers and listeners that they should give us some ideas. We want to do some new swag for the spring semester. So starting in January 2018, we currently we give out coasters, notepads, tote bags. We try to do things that are easy to mail uh, when you call in and win a prize and that we can take to conferences for people too. So, um, but we need some new ideas. So if you have any ideas for easily portable um, prizes that we can give away that are easy to put in the mail for people. Um, send those ideas our way. You can tell us if you call in today. You can mixlerize something if you're listening. Or you can just send Walter an email. He reads all the tea with BVP emails. <laughs> so, Walter, what's our um, email address again? It is twowithbvp at gmail.com. <laughs> there you go. Oh, this it's opened a, really a Pandora's hard one. box, I think. Oh, yeah? <laughs> okay, so um, Luca, our... Um, uh, publications person and our um, Twitter handler, uh, follower, and guru um, sent out the question this week about what are some strategies we can use to make input uh, more comprehensible in the classroom. And we got some really pretty good, interesting things here. So um, we had um, something for this is from Spanish Bananish, which I love. Uh, use real yet succinct texts. Uh, use tweets, infographics, ads, PSA, headlines, memes, et cetera, and let students explore and analyze at their own pace. So in other words, rather than giving them lots of language at once, give them shorter things, which kind of goes in line with what we were saying earlier. Um, instead of talking at 
talk with. And so the shorter the pieces you give them in terms of text is more like talking with. Um, and then there was some back and forth about real or authentic, and that's okay. Uh, we won't deal with that. That's another show. We had a whole show on authentic texts, I think. All right. Um, let's see here. Um, Magister says, use fewer words and shorter messages, right? So shorter sentences again. And, and the, the fewer words you use at a given point in time, that's good because um, remember that whole idea of rephrasing and restating using your words over and over again? That helps learners start to pick up on things in the messages that they missed the first or second time you said it. Um, oh, look what Ginny said. She was, must have been reading my mind when she wrote this tweet earlier. Speaking slower with pauses. There you go, speaking with pauses. Um, so that's good. Um, Richard Green says, use synonyms, antonyms to help with vocabulary. Um, it, and he's right. It depends on the language. And and um, and sometimes synonyms and antonyms are great, but sometimes students don't always get that it's an antonym you're using or something. So, But that can work if you do it right. Um, oh, here's Longiness gave us a nice site to go to. He says, here are lots of ideas for making input comprehensible that come from Ola Senor Howard. And that's senorhoward.com. Senor Howard is actually uh, a young man who completed his undergraduate degree at the same time I did, and we took our teaching methods class together. Hmm. So there you have it. So why isn't nice. there a senorwalter.com? Uh, Senor Walter, I don't know doesn't happen. It would be Senor Hopkins probably, but because <laughs> it's his last name. Oh, Howard is last. Those people that have a, a first and last, a first name and a first name yeah. is a first and last name, like William Thomas. Who's that really good looking guy on MSNBC? He's a newscaster. What's his name? Thomas, <laughs> Thomas Robert. His name is Thomas Robert. It's like, okay, you got two first names, boy. Okay. All right. Courtney said, I love visuals and students like them as well. Of course, we all use visuals. Visuals always help a lot. Uh, makes things concrete. Um, let's see. There's a lot more, lot more ideas here. Um, a lot of thing about visuals. Uh, El Roche talks about visuals, gestures, and so on. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, and then uh, Luca did a follow-up question. We were just talking about um, in our presentation. How do you know your input is comprehensible? And Lungana says, direct feedback from students. So there you go. This is why you have to talk with and not at because they're the ones going to tell you of their understandings, if you ask them something. So, um, and again, um, it doesn't have to be actual target language stuff. They just have to show you they're comprehending in some way or another. Um, and Chris says, when students answer the question, what does X mean? Um, that's very controversial. I know a lot of people do that. So they'll stop after a couple sentences. In English, they'll say, what does botella mean? And Angelica goes, bottle. Bottle. And some people like doing that, some people don't. Um, that's the kind of thing I would suggest using judiciously um, because uh, only because it just, the more you do that, the time it takes away from them hearing more of the L2. So, and that's probably something that might be a little bit better at the very, very beginning, and then you taper it off and start not to use it so much anymore. So, but that's my, that's my suggestion that it, there's no research on that or anything like that. Um, let's see here. Um, Richard Richard says in the answer to uh, how do you know your input is comprehensible he goes when I can spontaneously riff on the story and they all react by laughing smiling shock face and so on so yeah clearly we're talking about students demonstrating comprehension because 
they are doing something <clears throat> with the input that um, they are hearing or reading. Okay, we'll come back to some of those in a minute. We don't want to do all those at once. Um, oh, we got another person on the line. Here we go. We got, is it Maris? Oh, my God. Is it really? Maris, are you on the line? Yes. Mar- we have, first, we had Paris. Now we have Maris. And Maris, you are calling from? Potomac, Maryland. Potomac, Maryland. Great. Now, Maryland, I think you're, you're calling about the diva question, right, Maris? I am. Okay, but before you do that, I'm going to give you a double prize if you can answer this pop culture question. Are you ready? So if you, yes. an- if you can answer this one correctly and then you answer the diva question correctly, you get two prizes today. So on what long-running TV show was Maris a character who never appeared in any episode? On Frasier. Ding, 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 there you go. She was, right? Nice. Maris was the wife of Niles, but you never saw her. She was very cold. Yes, she was very cold and thin. And uh, uh, Remember that description when she was missing and they gave her on the phone, they were telling the cops, um, thin, very thin, and then the guy goes, Caucasian, and then there's a pause, and the guy goes, very Caucasian. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but anyway, so Maris, you have the same name as a famous TV character. There you go. Yes. Okay, Maris, so you're calling about the Diva uh, challenge question, right? So let me read that again for our audience, and then you can give your answer, and we'll see if you win a second prize. All right, the question is, what Cuban-born singer who died in 2003 was known as, and probably still is known as, the Queen of Salsa. Maris, the answer is? Celia Cruz. Celia Cruz. Excellent. Ding, ding, ding. There you there go. It is. That's great. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but she was probably the most popular Latin artist of the 20th century. Even though we think of people like Ricky Martin exploding in the 90s and Gloria Stefan in the 80s and 90s, um, now we think in terms of platinum records, right? But back in her heyday, um, Celia Cruz had 23 gold records. Did you know that, Walter? I did not know that. Which today, by today's standards, would you all know I'm be platinum. way up on my, yeah. my and, mom culture. And uh, <laughs> she's, she's been awarded and feted. She actually got Barack, Barack Obama. It was a, not Barack Obama. It was uh, one of the Bushes, I think it was, gave her a... Um, Medal of Freedom or something like that, American Medal of Freedom, something like that. So she's, she was quite the thing. So Maris, you win a prize for being Maris, and you win a prize for knowing Celia Cruz. How's that? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Anything you want to say or ask before we let you go? No, we um, in Potomac, Maryland, we tune in every week, and we talk about it in our department meetings a lot. So thank you all for everything that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you in your department. Tell all your department we said hi. We will. Okay, and your Yay, name Maris. and your name goes in the hat for a copy of the book. And uh, good luck on that. Okay, talk to you soon, Maris. Bye bye. Are Thanks. you going to are you going to Acro, By the way, are you going to Acro? No, we went last year. I wish we were going this year, oh. but we went last year. So. Okay, all right. Well, I don't know where it's going to be next year. If it's going to be closer to you, but maybe we'll see each other at the next Acro. Are do you are you a Spanish teacher? Yes, I am. Well, then you'll have to go to ATSP meeting sometime in the summer, and I'll see you there. So. Okay, sounds good. All right. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye bye, Maris. Maris. Thanks for calling, Bye. Maris. Bye-bye. I was, you know, not many people would know that answer that question about Maris on Frasier. Did, you, did anybody ever watch that show? Yeah. It was a riff on, because remember on Cheers, Cheers was a long-running show, and it was, whose wife was it? It was George's wife. 
that he always talked about Vera. Remember Vera? And you never saw Vera. Her name came up in every episode. Then there was that one Thanksgiving episode of Cheers where um, she finally think you're going to see Vera. The door opens, and um, I think it was... Uh, What's her name who worked in the bar? Was mad at George. So she went to throw a pie in his face and he ducked and the pie went in Vera's face. So you never got to see who Vera was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was very clever. And so when Frasier, which was a spinoff of Cheers, they took that idea of the wife you never see, which mm-hmm. was Maris, and that carried through. So Didn't that happen in another, what was a, a home improvement, the neighbor, oh, they, yeah. never, mm-hmm. they only show the top exactly. of his head. Yeah. Just see his eyes. His name? Wilson yeah. or something. Wilson, yes. You only saw his eyes. Yep. That's a recurring, that's a, Thing that happens in a lot of shows. Okay, I just looked it up for you, Bill. The next actful, so 2018, is in Nolens. And then in 2019, it's in Washington, which would be pretty darn close to Maris in in Maryland. Sorry. By the way, speaking of Norlands, which is a hop skipping away from Houston, what about those Astros, huh? So a yeah, big shout out, right? a big shout out to all the people in Houston who've been through a lot mm-hmm. this year. Congrats on the Astros. I was. Very pleased to see that, and I thought, and I got to see Justin Verlander right, exactly. pitch again. Yep. <laughs> oh my God, Justin Verlander. Okay, yep. I'm good glad times. Good. So, congratulations, Houston. Congratulations, Astros. Okay, how about some email questions or some Mixler comments or something? All right, we've got a few questions here. First of all, we have a little note from someone named Melissa. And she just wants to say she's a teacher here in Michigan, but she was your student, University of Illinois, class of 1988. Wow. Are you feeling old now, Bill? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not as old as you. She's, <laughs> she's just begun her 28th year as a Spanish teacher, and she just wants to say thank you for your service to our profession. Ah. So that is Melissa, who teaches thank here you, in Melissa. Michigan. And she wants to say thank you for your service to our profession. Oh, Melissa, you're sweet. Thank you, Melissa. Do you know Melissa? Yeah. Do you remember I, Melissa from, from the 1980, class of 1988? Um, I, I know several Melissas, and I'd have to have a last name that she had well, at the time. Well, I'll forward it along to you okay. later. How's that? All right. All right. Here we go. We have an email from Reed, and Reed is writing to us from Minnesota. So it's not the Reed from Hawaii. Okay. Nope, not the Reed from Just Hawaii. Cl- a, lot of, a lot of our listeners know the Reed from Hawaii. Okay. And he says he's currently working on his master's. His research topic is what motivates students to learn a foreign language. And he is interested in hearing from you. What resources could you direct for his writing for writing his paper? He's in the middle of our podcast on motiva- motivation that we did well, a couple years ago now. I love it. I discovered tea with BBP. From following Actful on Facebook, muchas gracias por su ayuda. And so there's your question. Any ideas on what motivates students to learn a foreign language? Yeah, um, good question. We, um, we should probably bring motivation up again in another show that, to talk about it in different ways. But um, there's not a lot of work on motivation with what we technically call foreign language learners, like learners of Spanish, French, and German in the United States. A little bit, but not a lot. Uh, but more generally, there's motivation um, because the research originally, most of it originated in Canada um, for the motivation for learning English if you're a French speaker and learning French if you're an English speaker and so on. And so uh, I'm going to suggest that you look at your, if you're doing your research, you probably have come across this name already. Um, but the last name is Dornier, and it's D O R N E. Wait a minute, am I saying this right? Dornier. Don't, no, D O R N Y 
E-I. And I think there's a little umlaut over the um, O. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he is uh, a really well-known person who's done a lot, of, a lot of work on motivation and other individual differences, and has written book, books on these topics. So do a little Google search on him and find out where some of his publications are because he, he, he did a, a 2005 book on individual differences, which motivation was a significant chapter. And I think that book's been updated. I'm not sure. Um, so, um, so there might be a more recent version, like a 2013 or 15 version, something like that. So just look him up, do a little search on him, and I would start there because you'll get a good bibliography from him. And you'll get a good synthesis from him, a really, really good guy on this topic. So try there and see if that leads you somewhere. Because if, if he don't talk about it, it probably didn't, probably didn't happen, right? He's that, he's that kind of guy. So good luck on that, Reed. Have fun doing your research. All right. What else? What are the questions we have? There you go. Well, let me pull up another one. Unless Angelica has something she like that. Yeah, going back to your definition um, for input earlier. So one question way earlier in Mixler was, what would be some examples of language that we hear, read, view that isn't communicative and that we don't attend to for meaning? Okay. Um, for example, um, if I'm explicating a topic about how something works, uh, like a grammar point, I could put a sentence up and say, this is where the direct object is. And you're looking at that sentence, but you're not processing what it's meaning. You're processing it for this thing called a direct object, trying to figure out what a direct object is. And you may or, or may not pay attention to the meaning because you don't have to when you read that sentence. You just have to know where the object goes. Right? Um, so that's called display language. Um, and so display language often is try to illustrate something about language, and I don't have to pay attention to the meaning. Um, there are certain kinds of language, traditional language practices where, um, let's say you're doing a repeat after me. So I could tell Walter to gangala water. Walter, gangala water. Repeat after me, gangala water. Gangala water. Okay. Now, tregala water. Tregala water. Okay, good, Walter. Gangala water. Gangala water. Angelica, tregala water. Tregala water. Okay, now they are hearing something and they have to repeat after me. But they don't have to pay attention to meaning because what does tregala water mean and what does gangala water mean? I mean, I just made those words up, right? And so, but they can do the activity without really processing for meaning, right? So they're hearing something or seeing something, but they're not focused on what it means. They're focused on repetition of what they heard or they're focused on doing something else depending on what the activity is or the exercise I have them doing. So display language, Language practices like that are examples of where you hear and see language in context that is not communicative in nature and doesn't have to be processed for its meaning. Excellent. Thank you. Now, just with that said, it doesn't mean learners don't incidentally process mm. for meaning. They might, but they don't have to. Whereas in a communicative event, you have to process for meaning. It's always about have to. Not whether you do, but have to. Okay, so what else? What else we got going on here? All right, I've got one from Deborah. Deborah, is that spelled Deborah? D E B O R A H. Okay, I'd like to know these things. Deborah in Ohio, and she says that she recently heard you speak at Hope College. Um, Ooh! Reimagining world languages for the 21st century. I was century. sick. I was sick at that talk. Mm. That was that. Remember that was when I was here and I had di- mm-hmm. that attack of diverticulitis. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I was in. I was in horrible shape. Go ahead. So she is uh, excited to be introduced to your research and she's been reading some of your books and um, she looked at our our website here for MSU language program and saw that our stated proficiency goal is 
getting half of students in the program to intermediate mid by the end of the fourth semester, which is a more ambitious goal than they have at her institution. She's wondering how long we've had that goal, what form of assessment we're using, and what are our results. Okay, we've had that goal now for probably, what, four years, Walter? Something like that? Five years, I think. Maybe five years, because I think it was right after you got here, we established that and started working on it. Um, So it's been a goal of ours for about five years. And we've recently researched it, um, MSU through um, Sue Gass and Paula Winky and some other uh, folks in CELTA and uh, some other personnel, uh, got a, a national grant where we tested Spanish, French, uh, Russian and Chinese, those are the four languages we looked at, at different proficiency level, uh, not at different proficiency level, but different seat time levels. So at the end of the first year, after the second year, into the third year, into the fourth year when they were graduating and so on, to see what their proficiency levels were in oral writing, I mean in oral communication, or the oral proficiency test, I should say, because this is using ACTFL standards. Uh, oral proficiency test, the reading proficiency test, and the listening proficiency test. And uh, so we, Walter and I focused, and, and Matt in French, um, focused on the 200-level proficiency test because they tested people in the fourth semester. And so what we found, so that we were lucky we got that grant because that saved us a lot of legwork because you know, so many students that gave us a big data set to work with. And what we found was the following. I had always set the bar really high at 50%, becoming intermediate mid at the end of tier two. That's really a high goal. But I set it high on purpose because I wanted to give us a target, knowing that at some point I might have to readjust it. What we found was that we were getting about 20% there. And so it made me realize, it made me go back and say, yeah, um, my 50% is really ambitious, so I'm going to drop it down to 33% this next year. And so if so, within, within two years, I want us to get to 33%. If we can get there in two years then I think we can start looking at the 50% again in another way. But first, got to get there. we got to get to 33%. And there's all kinds of reasons why we're not there, which we don't need to get into the show. That's more of a private conversation. Um, but anyway, so we started five years ago with that goal. Um, we had a grant to test it. We got the data, and we are falling short of our goal, which we knew was too high. So we're adjusting the goal. But we still have a goal greater than what we're getting because we want a goal. A goal. We don't want to just say, We've achieved our goal and drop our goal down to 20%. We want to want something else. And so um, so check back with us in two years, and we'll see if we're there. There you go. All right, Deborah, there you have it. All right. We got another call on the line. We have Kim on the line. Kim, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, Kim, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank Good. You. Where are you calling from? A, uh, Washington. Uh, state or D.C.? D.C. D.C. Great. Yeah. So, what do you do in Washington D.C., Kim? Are you a teacher? Or are I you a Spanish? Oh, yes, you're... I teach Spanish. Well, good for you. Great. So, what are you calling about? What's up? Okay, this is a question. Um, in my school, they're moving towards the idea of basically, if you're in a certain grade, that you should be in a certain Spanish class versus whatever level of ability you have in in the language. Um, so, for example, you'd put together a novice, and if somebody came in, an intermediate high, you'd still put them in the same level. I'm not talking about heritage speakers. Right. I'm talking about you're in such and such a grade, and it's um, we're just going to be able to do it because we'll use scaffolding, etc. Um, do you know where that idea is coming from? Is there a research or something that that's coming from, or can you comment on that? Uh, first of all, let me ask you a clarification question. I'm not quite sure what 
when you say they they're in a certain grade, they be placed in a particular class or a particular Correct. level. So uh, a certain level, like say you'd be in Spanish eighth grade, or you'd be in Spanish ninth grade, and you so therefore you could have um, novice low with intermediate high, but use scaffolding to somehow make it all work. Do you have any, I just want to know if that's uh, where that idea might be coming for us from as far as research or uh, is it realistic? Um, I don't. And again, I am not talking about heritage speakers. I'm right. About- I don't know of any research on that. Um, and I think, and I don't, Angelica, you haven't heard of any research on that either. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, that sounds, I think that, I, I, unless someone calls in and corrects me, I think that's someone's speculation saying, let's try this and see what happens. That's what I'm, for example, the same way Walter and I came up with 50%. We know it was a high goal for our, what we wanted to, you know, get out of our four semesters. Nobody had done it before, so we're going to try it and see. And now we've experimented on it. We know it doesn't work, so we're going to try something else, right? Or we're going to tweak our program and blah, blah, blah. So I think in your case, it's the same thing. Someone said, what, what can we try? What, what, and then they have to see if it works. Well, I think it's probably just logistical, too. You have all of your ninth graders in one class because, well, that's when that fits into their schedule. I, I imagine it's more a logistical thing than, than, uh, than mm-hmm. it has anything to do right. with any, any research. Okay, okay. All right. At least well, that's how it always – when I taught in the, in, in the K-12 system, that's what it seemed to be was it was, well, you put them all in the same class because, oh, wait, uh, that's when you can make it work. So as opposed yeah, to by, okay. by proficiency, uh, it was just simply by grade, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. All right. There you go. All right. Thanks, Kim. Okay. Good question. Okay. You're right. welcome. Bye-bye. Have Bye-bye. a great Thanks day. Thanks for calling, Kim. Bye, Bye. Kim. Yeah, that whole the placement thing is just, we should have a show on placement sometime, but I don't know mm. what we would do other than just raise all the problems with placement because right. <laughs> there are so many problems with placement. Um, and there are just no good tests for placement if your focus is on proficiency and your focus is on the acquisition mm-hmm. class. And they're just not. They're nope. just not. Um, and Daniel and I have in the past tried to work on some placement tests that um, weren't discrete point or another. they're very difficult to do. Um, but anyway, so long story short, it's that placement is still antiquated and traditional. Um, so and and to do appropriate proficiency testing would be so time consuming, expensive. I don't know how we would mm. do it. Well, Deborah actually has a follow-up question if you're ready to hear it because it's actually about placement tests. And she thinks how crucial – she asks, how crucial do you think a reliable placement test is for incoming students to meet proficiency goals? Um, I, excuse me. I'm going to about sneeze. I think that it's, it's, very, it's very important, uh, uh, an appropriate placement test if you're trying to meet – excuse me. <laughs> oh, <Salud>. my gosh. <laughs> That's all the dust coming off Walter's hair. Right. <laughs> Walter hasn't dusted his hair in three days. Can you tell? <laughs> wow. Walter just gets that, gets that can of pledge out there. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that hair. Look at that hair. Full of dust. Moving okay. right along. Anyway, anyway so Deborah, placement tests. So, Deborah, so placement tests are absolutely critical um, to, be, to be good placement tests. For, if, if your goal is proficiency, let's say you have an outcome because – Let's say, instead of saying, well, here's, here's an example. Let's say I move my program 
and uh, instead of having after four semesters, you'll be at intermediate mid. If I just say, if you're at intermediate mid, you don't have to take any Spanish, right? And so take the test. If you're intermediate mid, no classes you need to take. If you're not intermediate mid, and let's say you place novice high, you need to go in an appropriate class so you can be where you're supposed to be so you can start working toward intermediate mid. I can't just put you in seat time third semester, for example. That might not be appropriate. So if your goal actually is proficiency, then placement tests become critical to get you to the point so you're either not too ahead of your level or too behind in wasting your time. So placement does become critical, I think, for proficiency testing. It's just, it's a hornet's nest. Yeah. Mm. It's a mess, as they mm -hmm. say. It's a mess to do placement testing right. So anyway. It's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess, but... And there's a lot of good theoretical work on placement testing, but it's not the, the logistics of it. The practical part of it is is not what's there. So, all right. Any other questions, comments? What's going on? Mixler is awfully quiet today, Angelica. What is wrong with those? Are they asleep at the wheel? No, they're not. But they're they're discussing amongst themselves. Really? I mean, one question. I feel um, left. Tell them I feel left out. <laughs> well, I mean, one question. Um, going back to this whole grade levels and students. How do you meet students' needs with CI? Is it even possible if you, right? Because it's so difficult to teach all the different children in an eighth grade. So they're discussing right now if it is even possible to meet the needs. What? what but what do they mean by needs? Me, because they're needs? so diverse, right? Yeah, I mean. because they come with different backgrounds and are at different levels because yeah. placement in K-12 doesn't right, right. really yeah. exist. If needs are means different levels and so on, then yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, and yeah, so you wind up doing, you know, there is some interesting research. It depends on how disparate their levels are. There was some research done in the 80s where they started pairing students up that were at disparate levels. So like... Um, students who were like intermediate paired with students who were advanced and had them working together. And they found that, that, that the advanced students were solidifying their skills and getting a lot of emotional enjoyment out of what they were doing in this pair work. There was like tasks. It wasn't just pair works. It was like tasks. And the intermediate students felt comfortable like they were learning something because they had somebody who was above them and understood them as language learners, and they, they, they felt that there was they were getting something out of it. And I don't remember what measurements they used, but long story short, the the research was very positive about pairing students up at different levels to do different kinds of tasks, as opposed to pairing students at the same level. So that's an interesting concept. So, and again, that that was only one study I remember from the '80s. I don't know if much has been done since then, but somebody else who works in that field can let me know. All right. Do I got to do the book drawing now? Yeah, it is time. Oh, my God. Look at that. The time flies when you're on Prozac. Okay, here we go. Guess what? I'm here, so I get to do the drawing. Yeah, absolutely. You want me to hold the cup for you? No, I can just oh, I can leave it here on the no table. No cheating. I'm not, I'm not even looking at it. I'm just, and I'm spinning them all around in there real good. And if I draw Luca's name, I'm going to stab him with my pen. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that in Basic Instinct, you know. <laughs> Let's see. Who is it? The winner of the book is, oh, my God, she's a triple champion today, Maris from Maryland. Yay. Oh, good for Maris. Congrats, Maris. She got her Maris Prize. She got her, um, what was it, the Intake Prize? No, the Celia Cruz Prize. Is that mm -hmm. it? And then now she's getting the book prize for being uh, a caller today. So good for you, Maris. 
Uh, we will get that in the mail to you in the next couple of days. Thank you for calling in. See, people, it pays to call in. You win a book. Mm-hmm. Or you get a chance to win a book. So, uh, Maris, I hope you enjoy that. If you haven't read it already, um, enjoy it when you get it. How many more weeks are you giving away books, Bill? Um, to Lackville. Then it, you know why? Because what's going to happen at Lackville? You're going to sign them. Yeah. Well, you're signing them already. I Saturday, guess. those of you listening, if you're going to Ackville, Saturday at 3 o'clock in the exhibit hall is the book signing. I will be there in the flesh with pe- with the Ackville crowd, um, and we'll be there signing. Oh, I'll be there signing books, and it'll going to be fun. I'll, maybe I'll tell some jokes. Remember that funny girl? Are they sh- going to have a microphone for you? I'm doubting it. Do you think I need a microphone, Walter? <laughs> <laughs> I'll use my teacher voice. Mm-hmm. It's like Walter. Have you ever heard? You know, you're down in Celta on the first floor. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard Walter when he's on the third or fourth mm-hmm. floor? You can, he oh, comes, stop. It comes down yep. the stairwell. He's got that teacher voice and that echo. You can hear him. You can hear him, I tell you. Um, okay, any last minute uh, questions? We have a request for a future show on um, examples of tasks, concrete ideas for us to build off of. That's what people are calling for. Okay, I just did that in my class yesterday because I came up with a new task about one of the topic is. There's two, two, I just did two new tasks for this newsletter I'm working on because uh, I love writing tasks. They're so much fun. One is on, do you know what the top 100 jobs are according to U.S. News and World Report? And I have a whole task that where students get to work to try to guess which jobs are in the first and the top 20 mm. and which ones aren't. And you give them all the jobs and they have to categorize them. And then they find out which ones are and which ones aren't in the top 20. And then that, then in the next step, they get the actual rankings for the jobs that they were looking at in step one and try to figure out which rankings go with which job. And three of the jobs aren't even in the top 100. Mm. And so which ones aren't? So they have to figure all these things out. And then they get the review. And then there's a discussion afterwards about what factors do you think go into determining what U.S. News and Report. So it's a really fun task. And then I'm devel- I just developed another one that deals with whether you're a cat or dog person because mm-hmm. the research is showing us that there are um, minimally three personality traits that line up with whether you are a strongly cat person or strongly a dog person. Hmm. Isn't so. the next chapter in your book on tasks anyway? Yeah, that's what I just did in my class yesterday. So, all right. Well, guess what, kids? I'm so glad we had this time together. And I've got to do my acknowledgments now. Okay, here we go. So, time to say goodbye and give our thanks to all the wonderful people we work with. First, who do we always thank first, Angelica? Daniel Trago. Daniel Trago, the magic man on the board, our technical producer who we could not do without. Couldn't do it out anybody, but we always put him first. Our media producer and PR guy, Luca Giappone, makes great pasta. The talented and trusted <laughs> call handler, Dustin DeFelice, we also like to call our muscle man. We also thank our able-bodied duo, Chad Bosley and Ryan Stuck. Ryan is off today because why? Baby! He just had a baby, so congratulations to Ryan Yay. on your new baby. He's staying home this week. The College of Arts and Letters, we thank them uh, here at MSU, especially our dean, Christopher Long. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And, of course, we want to thank all of you listeners out there as well. So, guess what next week is? We continue our countdown to ACTFL, Chapter 5. And what's the focus of Chapter 5? Wasn't it tasks? I thought tasks. it was tasks. Yeah, so tasks. it's right there. So that request came in at the right time. Perfect. So maybe we'll do some more. Maybe we'll put some up on the website or something. So again, call in for your chance to win a book next week. Until then, have a great weekend and happy second language acquisition.
Auf Wiederhören. Auf Wiederhören. Very good. Goodbye, everybody. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. It was great to be with you today. <laughs> oh, God, Mary Poppins is back. Yep, she is in full glory.